Welcome to Conversations in Bioethics, a podcast series in which we discuss contemporary bioethics issues with Cleveland State faculty and other professionals. In this episode, we're going to talk about moral distress in healthcare. And in order to talk about the uh, concept of moral distress and some of the issues surrounding it, I'm joined today by guest Georgina Morley, who is a registered nurse in the United Kingdom and is currently a postdoctoral fellow in nursing ethics at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Morley has training in clinical ethics consultation and has done research in bioethics and nursing ethics with a specialization in moral distress, which was the topic of her dissertation for her PhD. She has published in numerous journals on the topic of moral distress as well as other topics, and she has published in journals such as the Journal of Clinical Nursing, Nursing Ethics, and the Journal of Nursing Research. And so let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming. We really appreciate you doing this. So the first thing we should do is say something about what is moral distress. And also in your work, uh, you make a distinction or you actually argue for a broadening of the common definition of moral distress. So could you define it and talk a little bit about your own view about what the concept should include? Yeah, sure. Um, So the topic of moral distress was first um, talked about by an American philosopher, Andrew Jamerton, in 1984. And he said um, that moral distress is this really narrow concept. It basically occurs when you know the right thing to do, but you can't carry it out. Um, But there's been some sort of muddying of the waters since that original definition. Um, Some people just sort of then started talking about moral distress occurring during moral conflicts, and and they used different terminology to say um, knowledge of the right thing. So it was like when they feel like they know the right thing, when they're, you know, when they believe the right thing. And so that sort of led to a bit of, like, epistemological ambiguity about actually what, you know in what state of knowing must you be in order to experience moral distress? Um, So my PhD work was sort of about stripping all of that back and really looking at the concept itself. Um, So I interviewed critical care nurses in the UK and just sort of said to them, tell me about your experiences, tell me, you know, what are the ethical challenges that you're facing um, and, and how does that make you feel? And then throughout the interview, then sort of asking, all right, so what does moral distress mean to you? And what I heard sort of pretty clearly was that actually some of the most morally distressing or the most distressing experiences that they had were when they had no idea what the right thing to do was, when they felt, you know, completely stuck between a rock and a hard place, like... You know, they a lot of them were saying, I've, I've not had ethics training. I haven't done a degree in philosophy. Like, I don't know what the right thing to do is. Um, and, and that makes me feel so powerless and so frustrated. Um, and so, essentially, I then analysed all of those interviews and said, well, I think that we really need to have a much broader understanding of moral distress. Um, so my argument is that um, any any... So I, I sort of found different moral events is what I sort of called them Um, so moral conflicts, moral dilemmas um, moral uncertainty and then moral constraint which is the same as Jameson's um, 
all, as long as there is a causal connection between those moral events and the psychological distress that a nurse is experiencing, that we should then label that moral distress. And we don't need to say that they have to know the right thing to do because morality just isn't that simple. It's often extremely complicated, as I'm learning whilst I'm doing clinical ethics consultation. Um, and then I also sort of developed this new idea of a moral event called um, moral tension. So the idea is that um, a lot of the nurses talked about sort of feeling like maybe they had an idea of the right thing, but they didn't know what to do with that feeling or they lacked the confidence to actually engage in any conflict with the rest of the team. So they would feel like they had this sense of, this doesn't seem right, I'm not really sure what's happening, but I don't have the confidence to go and speak to the team about it because I don't have the language. Um, so that was a different moral event that I, I've sort of argued that's moral tension distress. So there's sort of these five that I think, these five moral events that cause, that cause distress. So moral tension is internal tension or feeling as opposed to tension between members of the team or because they may not even know that the nurse is having that experience or questioning whether they should yeah. obviously say something. Yeah, and I think that so there's been a lot of discussion in the literature, even in terms of constraint. So this idea of there being an internal and an external constraint. But I think that that can be very unclear um, because a nurse might feel, um, they might feel like they don't have the confidence to raise an issue, but that might actually be because they tried to raise an issue in the past and they got shot down. And so, you know, they're like, well, I've tried that before and it didn't work. So I think that they can, they're really interrelated, the internal and the external. Um, but you yeah. want, so it sounds like the the original work on it was coming sort of top down. Here's where we're going to define the concept, and then you have to meet the requirements in order to be somebody who can legitimately say that you are experiencing moral distress. Whereas it sounds like your work is you're starting out in the trenches, and I want to see how people are what kind of experiences they're having, and if the ultimate goal is to help them regain a sense of power and help the patients yep. as best they can, then why not widen this concept? Um, and it's interesting, too, because a lot of what I was reading getting ready was they always started out with, let's distinguish a moral dilemma from moral distress. Um, and you would say a moral dilemma still then is could be a cause of moral distress. Yeah, I mean, I think... So essentially, when Jameson introduced the term, and it's so funny because, you know, he wrote this entire book <laughs> and talked about moral distress on, like, one page, and then that was what got extracted from his, from his entire work. Um, and he, he said there's three different issues. So he, he developed this concept from speaking, you know, he spoke to nurses. He wasn't a nurse himself, but he spoke with nurses, um, and he really got this sense that they knew the right thing to do, but they were constrained. And so he was also trying, I mean, I get the sense that he was trying to develop it from, you know, from the bottom up as well. Right. But obviously, I mean, I think times have potentially changed. Um, but he, so he said, there's these three different problems, uh, ethical issues in healthcare. There's moral distress, there's moral uncertainty, and there's moral dilemmas. 
And so this is why I think a lot of people start by distinguishing between them. But then they don't always stick to that distinction. <laughs> um, and then later on, they'll start talking about people not being sure about the right thing to do and that and that causing their distress. Right. Um, so I think people are trying to be rigorous with their concepts, but not it doesn't always it doesn't always sort of carry they don't they don't always carry it through essentially right and we should say a moral dilemma in in ethics is typically thought of as having two alternatives and whichever one you choose there's going to be some moral regret or uh there's sort of no best case scenario yeah um, whereas typically you're saying Jameson's view of moral distress is knowing the right thing to do, having a pretty clear sense of it. You don't necessarily have a dilemma, but not being able to do it. And then you're widening it to that kind of feeling of, is this even right? Or, or what, is what we're doing right here? I, 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 I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So he So he was saying, essentially, they're mutually exclusive. They can't occur at the same time. Um, and Karina Fori has actually done some really, she is at um, the University of Washington and she's done some really, really good um, sort of theoretical work teasing this out in, in Jameson's work and sort of saying, you know, there's some real inconsistencies here. Um, and I sort of took a lot of her work as inspiration and she she actually argued that that there should be um, she developed this idea of moral conflict distress um, to w- and then I added these these other categories from my empirical work um, but yeah I think there's there can be a lot of inconsistencies with with a lot of these concepts and I I mean I've got a philosophy degree by background so sure. <laughs> you know I like to be very precise with absolutely. my concepts absolutely um, so. but it's still interesting the way that you came at it from that perspective of wanting to include you know without including too much trying to include the real experience that people are having and the the variety of uh, moral experiences so I guess I should back up just a little bit and say you um, I think you might have said something but what is your background that and how you got interested in moral distress that you even took this on to do some research and and find out what it meant to yeah. uh, these nurses so um so I originally, I did a philosophy degree um, for undergraduate um, and thought, you know, I'd really like to help people. <laughs> so I looked at um, I looked at working in the charity sector and then thought, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about this. Um, and then I learned about some NGOs um, that did disaster relief. And I was like, wow, that, that seems incredible. Um, and I felt like I needed some skills. So I thought, well, why not try nursing? And no one in my family is really has a medical background, so it was a bit left field, and I sort of had no idea how it would go and what it would be like. Um, but I thought, yeah, let's try. And then I just, you know, even though being a student nurse is extremely challenging, um, I loved it. I, you know, it was it was just it's it's an incredible incredible profession and it's you know a real privilege to be able to look after people um at the most challenging times of their lives um so yeah i went into nursing with a background in philosophy and ethics and so i think that that really you know that changed the way i looked at things and i sort of saw all of these moral challenges every day and was like we're not talking about these things we're not addressing these issues this just seems really wrong to me 
And then I started reading the literature. I found the moral distress literature. Um, I, I did a master's actually um, in nursing after I'd graduated and I um, interviewed nurses about their experiences of caring for patients with substance use disorder and in pain. Very long title. Um, and one of the themes that came out of that was knowing knowing the right thing. And so these nurses were saying, you know, I feel like this patient's in pain, but I can't treat their pain because I'm not being given the correct prescription from the physician. They have worries that we're, you know, exasperating and worsening their addiction by giving them opioids, but I'm having to just witness them being in pain. So, you know, classic moral constraint distress. Um, and that was sort of what then got me into the moral distress literature. Um, and my master's supervisors said, why don't you go to America and speak to these people that are doing this research? So I was like, oh, yeah, OK, that's a good idea. Um, and then applied for a Florence Nightingale Foundation travel scholarship and then came over to the US and met with some amazing um, moral distress researchers and nurse ethicists. Um, so Lucia Woschel, Anne Hamrick, who has done the moral distress scale, and Beth Epstein, Anita Tarzian and Cinder Rushton at Johns Hopkins. So I spent a month and sort of travelled in between and was just like, wow, <laughs> what a great, you know, being a nurse ethicist essentially then became my dream. Yeah, um, it sounds like an amazing educational experience. Yeah, it did, was awesome. Did, were there a lot of similarities in the UK and the United States in terms of the what was going on in the hospitals or the care facilities in terms of experiences? Yeah, so, I mean, now I've spent a bit more time in the US, I think, you know, there are, there are big differences, um, but there are also huge similarities. Um, so, I mean, for example, decision-making is probably one of the biggest differences. I would say here there's a lot, um, you know, it's all about, so if the patient can't make their own decisions, you then go to the surrogate decision maker. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the, in the UK, the gold standard would be shared decision making, but it's a lot more paternalistic um, and physicians feel a lot more confident about saying, no, we're not going to provide that treatment because it's not going to, it's not going to meet its physiological objectives. Like, you know, there's, we're acting in your best interest and saying this is what we should do. Um, and that's something that legally, you know, the, the courts will support the, f- the physicians in being uh, much more paternalistic in that way. Whereas here, I think, you know, the emphasis is on, is on autonomy. Um, so that's probably one of the biggest differences and one of the things that I think is different in the US context in terms of causing a lot of moral distress for, for nurses. Um, but then I think nurses are then just facing slightly different challenges, essentially. Sure, sure, because it's going to lead to different kinds of challenges, but in the end, sometimes we say here, should we be giving them these choices when the physician themselves does not think it's a reasonable choice? But there is that fear of not giving them that choice and just saying, I really think this is not going to help, and we just do not want to provide it. We'll be hurting you more than helping you, and we need to move to a different... Yeah, and then the challenge in the UK is, you know, the opposite. And nurses saying, 
I don't think we're giving them enough choices here. Right. You know, they need to, we need to really lay this out and make sure they're aware of the different options. And I think physicians, are, you know, they are a bit more comfortable to say, well, yes, but this is really what I think they should do. So I'm going to really punt for this option. Sure. Um, obviously, that's not universal. But as a generalisation, I think, I think that's one of the big differences. Yeah, here it's autonomy, autonomy, autonomy. So this is really interesting in itself to talk about the fact that it is more paternalistic mm-hmm. in the UK. So what are the, we should talk about, what are the practical effects and what have they been to the nursing profession of moral distress. Yeah, so there's been there's been a lot of research in I guess since sort of the early 2000s um, using it was originally developed by Mary Corley the moral distress scale and then Anne Hamrick has developed that over time um, to the moral distress scale revised and then I think there's a new version coming out soon um, and this you know. My argument is that the moral distress scale really just measures this constraint notion of moral distress, so the mm. you know the narrower definition. Um, but on that scale, they had added the, this question about intention to leave nursing, um, and I think pretty consistently in a lot of the research, there's been a fairly high amount of nurses that have said. That, that they would intend to leave. And so there's been correlations between, you know, high levels of moral distress, um, poor perception of the ethical environment, and then um, and then the intention to leave. So a lot of nurses are, are leaving because it's just, it's too difficult. Um, I think retention is traditionally a difficult thing to um, measure and test in nursing because there's so many different reasons that nurses would sure. would leave um, and obviously so a lot of the research has been looking at nurses in you know the high intensity settings so like ICU the EDs um, where you have the sickest of the sick but those are also those areas where nurses will go in order to you know, learn quickly and then do further education. So to become like a nurse practitioner or a clinical nurse specialist. So you have a, li- a lot of turnover in those areas for those reasons as well. Mm-hmm. So it's really difficult to sort of, you know, um, really pinpoint why people are leaving. You and also I, mentioned burnout. Yes. And it maybe is an overused term, but because that is also something in my head that nurses will often feel like they're understaffed they're they're very stressed they have too many patients and which itself could lead to moral distress or some kind of moral conflict yeah um so did they is there literature trying to separate moral distress and its connection to the intention to leave versus other kinds of factors like burnout or yeah so burnout and compassion fatigue um, so burnout, compassion fatigue and moral distress, you know, they do sort of have quite a bit of overlap in terms of um, in the research and then also, I guess, conceptually and also um, the, the effects, essentially. So, um, yeah, one of the things that I found in my research was that nurses were saying that they were sort of depersonalising patients um, as a way to cope. So in the ICU, you have, you know, maybe a patient that is awake, but there's no more treatments that they can offer and they're on, you know, life-supporting machines. So 
often what the nurses sort of described as doing was just concentrating on the tasks in hand, con- you know, really concentrating on the machines and and sort of creating that barrier between them, um, that emotional barrier between them and the patient and the family because they just know, you know, I, I can't cope with that today. It's It's too much. And I think this is one of the really good things about you know, moral distress, burnout, compassion fatigue, that literature, is we are beginning to to realise that healthcare professionals, nurses, physicians, they're all, you know, we're human beings. And so caring for human beings that are dying is always going to be something that is going to be emotionally challenging. And then throw in all of these other issues around, you know, lack of staffing, lack of resources, and that makes it, you know, 10 times harder. Um, so I think it's good that we're sort of starting to pay a bit more attention to it. Um, and where understanding of moral distress and education is higher, does that alleviate some of their uh, those feelings, taking care of some part of it? or Yeah, so there's sort of there seems to be conflicting things in the literature around sort of this idea of moral awareness and actually having greater awareness of ethical issues can actually increase somebody's feelings of moral distress. No. Um, obviously. Sure. I mean, it makes sense. Um, but then at the same time, one of the sort of ways to address or mitigate moral distress is with ethics education. Um, and that's one of the things that I try to do. I try to, um, you know, I try to help nurses understand ethical issues from different perspectives because once you understand okay yeah this is this isn't something that I would do or that I would want for my family but I can understand now why they're making that choice or why we're encouraging them to make that choice or you know that can also help to alleviate it so you know there's no there's no magic magic wand essentially with moral distress which I think frustrates a lot of people Mm -hmm. um yeah, <laughs> it's very complex. So in your work, you talk about two aspects of moral, dispre- moral distress, psychological distress and a moral event, mm-hmm. and how understanding these two aspects can help us determine how to respond to specific instances of moral, dis- uh, moral distress. Can you say a little bit about what each of these means and mm-hmm. how that's connected in your research about finding interventions for it? Yeah, so one of the things that I have tried to do is to sort of separate this moral event and then the psychological distress that that follows. And, you know, I I really think, and we're trying to develop more, you know, interventions at the Cleveland Clinic to address these things. Um, For moral distress, you need, like, this two-pronged approach. You You need to address the underlying cause, so you need to try and determine what that moral event is that's causing the distress. And for that, you need... You need ethics. You need an ethics consultation service. You need somebody with ethics expertise or ethics knowledge to come in and help tease that apart and address that moral event. But then you also need people that are, you know, that are qualified to address the psychological distress as well. So you need. Um, I do a lot of work with a colleague in um, the employee assistance program. She's a social worker by background. And so she, you know, she's used to counselling people and talking to people about these feelings, you know, because I, you know, I'm well aware that, yes, I'm a nurse, but I don't have that expertise. So if I want to effectively address moral distress, 
you know, you need to have these partnerships where you can address both of these things. Um, and this is one of the problems in the UK is that we don't have ethics consultation services. We don't have clinical ethics services in the same way that not universally across the US, obviously, but the Cleveland Clinic, for example, you know, we have this amazing uh, clinical ethics service. Um, so, so would you say that a, a big role of the, the ethics consultation service is helping people tease out or get a better understanding of this moral event or giving some kind of label to some part aspect of what's going on in that room that yeah. kind of sorts it out from we're used to like the social work side and maybe bringing in counseling or you know mm-hmm. psychiatric evaluation things like that but the bioethics has this unique role is that so there's actually a lot of debate within uh, within bioethics and within clinical ethics um, about whether it's the role of the clinical ethics consultant to address moral distress um, you know, my argument is that yes, it is. It's obviously very difficult when you're working in a busy service such as the Cleveland Clinic when, you know, where you're getting, you know, 10, 11, 12 new consults each week. Um, but I do think that it is part of our role to try and address address moral distress during ethics consultation. Um and whether that means, you know, bringing in additional services. Um, I mean, we're lucky because we have a lot of resources, but, you know, bringing in spiritual care and saying, you know, they need somebody to to come and talk to them. Um, I've started doing a lot of reflective debriefs as well. So if we have a particularly challenging case that's either going on or they want to talk about it afterwards, then I'll go in with um, spiritual care or my and EAP um, to, to sort of really try and break that down and and discuss what happened. And often that's really helpful for nurses because a lot of information is missed and lost along the way and they don't, you know, there's so many nurses that it's, it's very difficult to make sure that they're aware of all of the things that are happening. So that can be really useful in terms of saying, you know, justifying why certain actions were, take it, were taken um, and then also exploring if they disagree with what happened, okay, why? And, and you know, I think one of the things that we're always saying is that reasonable people disagree. And, you know, that's, that's the point within ethics is everybody often, you know, lots of people have different beliefs. And it's about saying there is not necessarily one right answer, mm-hmm. um, but we're going to do the least worst, th- you know, the least bad thing, essentially. So in that debate about whether you should be using the term moral distress or what its role would be in terms of uh, ethics, a clinical consultation, is the other side of the debate that because that they're concerned that it gets us too much into spiritual care and psychological care or what, why, what's the reluctance? Um, so the, the, there has been, one of the things that I try to do is help people to recognize is it moral distress or is it just psychological distress? Because if it's psychological distress, you don't necessarily need ethics. You don't need, you know, that additional work. You just need to tend to your psychological distress. Um, And one of the things that's really good about that is it's also breaking down that stigma because I think there's been huge amounts of stigma. I think we're getting better with, you know, generally within society about destigmatizing mental health. But saying to nurses and, and doctors and other healthcare professionals, what you're doing is hard. What you're doing is emotionally taxing. If you feel psychologically distressed, then 
use these services that are actually available. <laughs> right, right. Um, and speaking of, so we've been focusing on nurses, and I'm sure the answer is yes, but do physicians experience moral distress? And how does it differ? Because they have a different sense of feeling of power, I, I mm-hmm. would have to think, in a clinical situation. Yeah, so um, I, I am very... Uh, biased <laughs> in that you know as a as a critical care nurse this is that's the profession that I'm really interested in working with and so a lot of my research has been focused on on nurses um, but yes I there is other research looking at, at physicians experiences of moral distress most of it is utilizing the moral distress scale so again you're capturing the the narrow definition um, but I would I would argue that that physicians probably experience more moral uncertainty distress and more moral dilemma distress because they you know they're higher up in the hierarchy they have the power to make those decisions so you know in virtue of that they're not going to be constrained in the way that nurses are um, I think often nurses will experience moral uncertainty distress and moral constraint distress at the same time um, because where they are in the hierarchy, they're pretty much always constrained in some way. Right. Um, That's so. interesting because you're then, based on what you're saying, physicians under Jameson's definition really don't experience moral distress much except maybe where, would you say, uh, like insurance doesn't cover something where there's a financial issue yeah. and so the physician themselves feels constrained because they can give this good advice but they can't yeah. you know they're tied up there but would you, it sounds like under his definition they wouldn't and maybe they're experiencing it too and yeah I mean yeah I think I think that's 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 definitely uh, true I think Within the U.S. context, I'm sure they experience a lot of moral constraint distress because of um, because of things like insurance. Um, I mean, I I would argue that it would differ along the spectrum and along the hierarchy. And so, you know, trainee physicians, you know, fellows, residents, junior doctors in the U.K. would probably experience more moral constraint distress because obviously, you know, they also don't have the power to make that ultimate decision. Um, but I think that would be a very interesting study yeah, well, to that, do. That's actually one of the questions I had or was thinking about even in terms of nursing. Is moral distress, uh, I guess, I mean, of course it could occur at any level, but is it because it comes from this feeling of powerlessness about just knowing the right thing to do, having are younger nurses more apt to experience it or... I wonder if, like, do older or more experienced nurses, I should say, not in terms of age, do they come to some resolution with themselves? Are they more likely to just adopt this method of detaching and carrying on? Like, how does that play out? So, yeah, again, um, in sort of, well, in all of the research, you know, a lot of people collect that demographic information. Um, and I, I did look at that when I was doing my PhD. But it does there doesn't seem to be any clear pattern um, I think, you know, more experienced nurses, as you said, they are potentially, they, they've learned how to put up those barriers um, and to, you know, desensitize and detach. And so they experience less moral distress because they've, they've figured out how to do that. 
also you could argue they have better coping mechanisms or they've learned they've learned how to you know work the system so that they feel like they're they're getting their their point across or that they're able to get some power in that way right like I was gonna say that was I think when I had been thinking about it part of it as well that maybe they've risen enough in the ranks or they're comfortable enough with themselves to it sounds like a big part of it can be not feeling like you can express your opinion mm-hmm. and have a conversation about it. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, that's definitely... But then I I also think that it's just so personality-dependent. You know, I've met a lot of new nurses that are just, you know, they're so confident and they're so sure um, that and, and comfortable going and speaking to physicians and saying, you know, help me understand. Um, so I think it... And, and that would also probably be interesting to try and do some sort of, you know... Um, comparison with with personality types because there's probably some people that just naturally feel more empowered and more able to manage these situations than than others. And also could be a difference in the kinds of education they're receiving now or just in terms of generational roles and not have you know not having as much uh, feeling like they have to bow to a hierarchy mm-hmm. of roles. I, yeah. Probably all, there would be all, that is interesting that you're saying that sometimes it's really the younger nurses that are perfectly comfortable going and talking or asking about it, and the older ones maybe have already acquiesced or yeah. I mean, I mean, young nurses are taught, you know, that you're part of the team. You have a you have a legitimate voice as part of this team, and you know you are the one that spends. 12 and a half hours a day with this patient and with this family you actually have you know all of this holistic knowledge that you well and not only holistic you know you also have a good medical understanding that you can share with the team so people ought to listen to what you're saying and I think you know yeah coming back to the personality thing I guess it depends on that individual nurse as to how comfortable they feel asserting themselves in those you know within the team right but I also think to give my physician colleagues credit (laughs) that there's more you know there's much more awareness amongst physicians now that that nurses have got you know they're not just you know the, the handmaiden now like they actually have good preparation it's it's a profession now which is something that in the UK you know we've struggled to be recognized as a profession Um, but now people are recognizing that and and they will listen to what the nurse has to say Um, so you would say your experience in the US has been nurses are highly regarded and recognized as the professionals they are and um, that has is put in place or yeah I mean I think I think that it obviously depends on the the team and it depends on the environment and again you know it's going to differ in different in different circumstances but where you have a good functioning team it's much easier to deal with moral distress than in a team that is highly dysfunctional and that often comes from you know poor team dynamics or not necessarily working as a team yeah yeah Yeah. so okay so you had said about uh maybe the outcome of an ethics consultation on the individual side would be referring them to spiritual care or some kind of conversation with somebody about the dilemma 
What is, um, and we talked about some of the practical effects in terms of burnout or intention to leave in that. What are some of the practical outcomes of all this research on moral distress? What have uh, institutions have obviously responded? In what ways have they responded? How has that affected maybe nursing pro, um, education mm-hmm. and um policies and things like that. Yeah, so I I mean I would argue that institutions have responded in various ways. Um so in the UK, I mean so I'll talk about it in a UK US generalizing <laughs> generalization. Um in the UK moral distress is still a very new term. Um, and the NHS is going through a very challenging time at the moment due to austerity, essentially. Um, and so I think institutions are generally failing to respond to moral distress in any meaningful way. Um, and I think that that comes from a combination of those things, that they just they don't have the resources to, to, to address it. Um, and there's still a lack of awareness that it's something that is a, a problem. Um, in the US, I mean, the, my most, you know, the most experience I have is obviously at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, and I think it really, it does depend upon the institution. And I think it depends if you have, generally, I would say, a nurse ethicist waving that flag to say, this is a real problem, this is a real problem in nursing, and it needs to be addressed. Um, so I think the institutions that are probably doing the most work are those places where, there's been a nurse ethicist. Um, so uh, Anne Hamrick and Beth Epstein actually developed a moral distress consultation service um, at uh, UVA, I believe. Um, and, you know, they're, they're tackling moral distress. Again, the narrow conception of moral distress or the moral constraint distress in this more, you know, um, systematic fashion. Um, and I think that they've just published on that. Um and then, but but this is now the new trend, essentially, in the literature is, okay, we've been trying to measure moral distress, we've been trying to figure out what moral distress is for, like, 30 years now, if not more. Um, my maths is bad. Um, now let's think about how to develop interventions. Like, what are the interventions that we can put in place to try and address moral distress? And like I said, like, there's no magic wand, but this is... This is the work that we're trying to do at the clinic. So um, one of the regional hospitals is now doing moral distress rounds. So a group of really passionate nurses um, are going and they're doing peer-to-peer rounding and speaking to their colleagues and saying, you know, how are you feeling today? Any, you know, do you have any distress? Um, and and what's the root of that? And they're trying to differentiate between is there a moral issue? Is it just psychological distress? providing a bit of validation for for those feelings and then trying to see what the moral issue is and if that needs a consultation, for example, or if it needs a conversation with the nurse manager. Um, So that's something that is um, pretty new and innovative. Um, And then obviously we're doing the the debriefs as well. Um, I'm also doing more education with nurses. So I think even though it's not clear whether that's going to be, you know, uh, something that's going to fix moral distress I'm sure it's not um, but I think that having greater moral awareness and understanding of different perspectives is always going to help um, It sounds like reaching out to the regional hospitals where they may not have 
the immediate access to the bioethics department that you do on the main campus or mm-hmm. if you're just kind of out there, is that part of the goal to... Yeah, so so the regional hospitals still have access to the ethics consultation. I mean, service. where they might not be right there to, I meant to take advantage or or more as likely. I'm not sure. Are yeah. They? Um, so, yeah, the volume isn't as great with the regional hospitals, um, but it just so happened that we started the. So one of my colleagues started this project in the regional hospital. Um, from the passion of the nurses, mm-hmm. essentially. And and that's part of addressing moral distress is really, you know, you need people on those units that are passionate about trying to address it because having just one person for an entire hospital that you can go to, there's so much moral distress to go around sure. <laughs> <laughs> that you need, you know, you need these huge teams to try and help, uh, try and help address it. And I was actually going to say... You know, there's actually, um, there are a lot of people in the literature that argue that we shouldn't be trying to get rid of moral distress because actually it's a very human response to morally challenging situations. Um, So I'm always very careful when we talk about interventions that it's, you know, to mitigate or address moral distress, never to get rid of it because we're never going to get rid of it. It's it's a natural... You want awareness of it, not necessarily to dissolve it yeah, and I, I mean, I'm actually more worried when people aren't experiencing any moral distress because they either have, you know, put up those barriers so much or they lack any moral awareness of what's happening or there isn't a moral event. <laughs> sure. So so I think you've kind of answered... Um, I mean, have you said, like, do you think this idea of the nurses themselves doing doing uh, moral distress rounds and uh, so I was going to ask you like what what other changes you would like to see is that yeah so um, so that's that is a new a fairly new intervention um, that we are we are trialing and the idea is to do some research to look at um, to look at the effects of that rounding Um yeah, there's there's many many things that I would like to do sure. <laughs> that are probably going to take a very long time in terms of trying to develop interventions and to you know measure those interventions to see how effective they are. And then, and you can only do so much. So <laughs> you're focusing on it in with among professionals, but what would you say about the culture of medicine and people's expectations? And what do you think they're like? You know, in terms of let's focus even on the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this idea that sometimes uh, maybe physicians even feel constrained that they should give these options for treatment that they themselves really don't think are reasonable, but a, a little bit more like the U.K. But because the emphasis is so much on mm-hmm. autonomy, um, they're constrained that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but some of that comes to public education and people's yeah. perceptions of the di- dying or what medically can be done. It's not necessarily something that occurs. Yeah. But I, I was going to ask you, too, maybe if you could answer that. Or I would suppose, is it like the ICU, those kind of pla- uh, areas of the hospital are the more likely places where you experience it? Yeah. So, um, so the ethics consultation 
service do quite a lot in terms of trying, you know, during individual consultation to try and coach physicians and to say, you know, if if you really do not think that this that this is a reasonable approach and if it's, you know, against reasonable medical standards and this intervention is not going to, you know, meet its physiological objectives, then don't offer it like you don't have to offer it right um there is no obligation there so a lot of that is about you know on the fly case by case doing education um culturally I think that's how you create change culturally is just on that case by case basis because I don't know how else we how else we would um and with their training, wanting I'm here to heal or to try, that has to be an educational process for them too. And yeah. it's I wonder if it's hard for them not to. Yeah, I think it, yeah, of course. Sure. I think so much of it is about you know then having to acknowledge your own powerlessness and not being able to save this person, and that's you know that's that's tragic. That's really that's really difficult for physicians to to manage. So it's again, it's about raising that awareness. If you're if you're experiencing suffering or psychological distress, then then you know, seek help essentially. Um, and I also think you know you talked about sort of death and dying. As a society, I think we need to get much more comfortable with talking about with talking about that. Um, in working in ethics and working in ICU, it's something that you get very comfortable with very quickly. Um, but other people, you know, they don't they don't discuss these things with their loved ones, and they are going to be Were the ones that are making those decisions for them. Right? Were you surprised when you got in the field, having studied it, you thought people would have more more discussions about this than once you got out there? Were your assumptions? Yeah, I mean, I guess, or... I guess, so a lot, one of the things that nurses always sort of, um, I always hear them saying is, you know, I wish we could do like a tour of an intensive care unit. So before people, you know, complete advanced directives or make these decisions, I wish that they could come and see, you know, what it's like, what it's like to be on a ventilator with a with a trach, on a respiratory wean for you know three to four months because there's been a complication or just because you have had so many comorbidities that, that the surgery has meant you know that you're that, that that you've had to be on that ventilator for for all this time um and i do wish that we could do i mean you'd obviously have to be very careful about how you did that but i do wish we could do some better education with the public generally about what these interventions mean so that they're not just watching TV and seeing CPR and thinking sure. that it's not, you know, that it's easy and ribs don't get broken. Sure. Um, and also maybe getting that education, at least if not bringing them in when they're maybe younger and maybe training, uh, you know, internists and to start the education process somewhat yeah. earlier before you hit that experience or I'm not sure yeah and I think I think that medical professionals are you know there's more emphasis on communication training and so people feel I think you know more confident to have these difficult discussions sooner you know earlier in their careers um, which is always going to benefit 
um, you know, patients and the public as well. So just as a final question, since a lot of students or primarily students are going to be listening to this discussion, what advice, if you have any, would you offer to young nursing students? I guess it would be to be to be aware of of this of this concept, to be aware of moral distress, to start learning how to recognize it in yourself and to start trying from a very early um from a very early point in in like nurse training learning how to achieve some work-life balance um and learning what your coping mechanisms are um you know i i try to encourage healthy you know healthy coping mechanisms when a lot of the time it's like well you know i went home and drank a bottle of wine mm-hmm. because i there was no one i could really talk to you know my husband doesn't understand my friends don't understand you know try and find that supportive group early on and utilize each other speak to each other um and you know if you go into an institution that does have a clinical ethics service utilize it don't be scared to utilize it um and you know speak your mind because you're an important part of the team um i think learning how to communicate ethical concerns is also really important a lot of the time you know, young nurses will go up to physicians and just sort of say, what on earth are we doing? Why are we doing this? This is crazy. You know, so it's immediately putting them on the back foot and being defensive about the plan of care. So I would encourage new nurses to think, you know, go up to physicians and say, help me understand. You know, I'm really struggling to understand um, why we're taking this approach with this patient because it seems to me X, Y, Z. They mentioned to me that they didn't want to be on a ventilator for an extended period or, you know, um, and just learning how to have those conversations so that you get heard um, because I think putting people on the back foot means that you're automatically going to be dismissed. Sure. Um, so those are probably my my key key takeaways. I think that's really good advice uh, and I think it's a nice addition to what you were saying earlier that even though younger nurses feel more empowered to communicate, they also have to work on how they're communicating that problem because they probably have something really relevant to say Mm -hmm. and it needs to be heard, but how you say it also, uh, which is an art, right? Yeah. (laughs) We all learn. Definitely. Earlier and later times um, and thinking about that now, I think that's really good advice. Thank you. Well, thanks for coming in today. Oh, I think this is going to be really valuable for nursing majors and other, you know, uh, healthcare professionals. Uh, and we really appreciate you doing this. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Conversations in Bioethics, a podcast brought to you by the Cleveland State Department of Philosophy and Comparative Religion. Produced by faculty member Tony Nicoletti in conjunction with the Center for Instructional Technology and Distance Learning. For more information about the Department of Philosophy and Comparative Religion course offerings, please visit our website at csuohio.edu or call 216-687-3900.